This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for December 17th, 2020. There's an update for iCloud on Windows, an unexpected older iOS update, and app privacy details roll out, what they mean and how you can read them. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm well. It's one of those weeks when we have to update everything. Apple once again updated, let's see, Mac OS, iOS, iPad OS, TV OS, Watch OS, HomePad OS. Am I leaving anything out? All the stuff. For some of my devices, I wait. And we've talked about this several times. You might want to wait a day or a week, depending on what it is. But for others, I need to update to get access to new features. In fact, we'll talk about one of them in the second part of the show. I haven't updated all my devices, but I did like three or four this week. What about you? Um, yeah, I, I got started updating some things. We've got a lot of devices and, and you know, like there's even like, uh, you, I think you mentioned tvOS is one of the things uh, I need to make sure that my Apple TV is up to date. Just before we were recording, I was taking a look to see if my iPad had updated and it hadn't automatically updated yet uh, to 14.3. So I updated it so I could check out one of the things that we'll be talking about later. There were a couple of other kind of interesting updates or things that they updated. Um, well, this one isn't particularly interesting, but we don't often mention this, but iCloud for Windows is a thing, and that does typically get some security updates. Um, and that was actually back on December 2nd. Um, so it wasn't the new December 14th from this week. Um, but that uh, occasionally gets updated too, and we hardly mention that. I, I don't know anyone who uses iCloud on Windows, but that is a thing. Perhaps if you work in a company where you have to use a PC and you want to access your iCloud account, but you can access it through the web. <laughs> well, for a long time, um, they actually were updating Safari for Windows. They dropped it, I, I guess it's been several years ago now, but... Um, Safari, the Safari browser used to be for Windows, and uh, they sort of killed it without um, really saying anything about it. it. It just sort of stopped getting updates, which was a really weird thing to happen, because normally when Apple stops updating something, it's because they've come out with a newer version, and this was just cut off, and they didn't really tell anybody that it was cut off. It, it has been a long time. It's been longer than I even remembered. So the last version of the Windows version of Safari was 5.1.7. And we're up to, what is it now? 14, I think. 14, yeah. yeah. Safari 14. So it's been quite a long time. In fact, um, this version, it says, was compatible with Windows 7, Vista, and XP Service Pack 2 or later. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, uh, yeah, don't use if you still got Safari uh, on your Windows PC, you should definitely uninstall that and never, ever use that again. <laughs> OK, well, there was another update that we didn't expect. Uh, yes. Now, now, this is something that we've talked about before, that um, it seems as though Apple is starting to do with iOS the thing that they have done with Mac OS for a long time, where they're updating a previous of iOS. Um, and in this case, because all the devices that were compatible with iOS 13 can be upgraded to iOS 14, 
they're still releasing some updates for iOS 12. And this is a little bit odd because um, they are releasing security updates, but they're not necessarily patching all the security vulnerabilities. They're like picking and choosing, it seems like, um, which vulnerabilities they're going to patch. This is actually very similar to what Apple does with the older versions of macOS when they uh, release updates for the two previous versions of macOS, where it seems like a lot of the things that they're patching uh, for the current OS could be patched probably for the other OSs. They probably do, some of them at least, apply to the older OSs, but Apple just chooses not to update everything. So the iOS 12.5 is is listed as an update that adds a COVID-19 exposure notification uh, as a feature to iOS 12. So if you have an older device, anything from uh, an iPhone 5S to a 6 uh, or 6 Plus, and also um, uh, certain iP- iPad models and iPod Touch models. I don't know whether you actually get exposure notification on those. No, you only get it okay. on the iPhone. And I remember when this was launched in the UK, a lot of people were complaining that they had to have a recent iPhone to be able to use it. Um, now, recent, right. as you said, anything compatible with 13 can be upgraded to 14. But uh, here, you're going back, as you was at the 5S. Now, that's going back pretty far. So I would say easily 95% of iPhones, if not more, uh, can now use this COVID notification system. Yeah, although I, I do know a lot of people who are still using an iPhone 6 even, um, which is, I, I mean, it's it's fairly old at this point. But if it's not, I mean, if it's still working for you, a lot of people feel like they don't necessarily have a, a big reason to update. Um, so yeah, this, the six and six plus, those are the most recent models that are stuck on 12 point, uh, the iOS 12.5. Um, but if you've got at least a six S, uh, you want to make sure you're, you're upgrading it to the latest version of iOS 14 as they come out. So iOS 14, uh, is out now it's available for only the most recent model of iPod touch, all the same devices that have been able to do the previous iOS 14 updates, as well as iOS 13 updates. Oh, and uh, big Sur, there's a new big Sur update too. So this is uh, big Sur 11.1. Uh, I, I remember on our previous podcast a few weeks ago, we were kind of discussing whether it would be 11.0.1 or whether it was going to be 11.1. So I guess... Yeah, because under 10, it was 10.1 and 10.2. Those were the major versions. Yeah, exactly. That used to be the the point something. It was the major version. And then the point something, point something was the the, uh, additional features have been added to this OS. So it seems like what this probably means is that whatever Big Sur's successor will be next year is probably going to be called Mac OS 12. So, um, I mean, of course, they'll call it whatever the fancy name instead of Big Sur, um, but the the behind the scenes version number that hardly gets talked about anymore at Apple is going to be macOS 12, probably. Yeah, they're not really using those version numbers much, but they're not using it in the marketing anymore. And it kind of makes sense because before the name of the operating system was macOS 10. And so the 10 was a number and then it was 10.1, 10.2, and you had the the, the cute animal names, et cetera. Now, if they're focusing just on the name of the operating system as, well, a location lately rather than an animal, it kind of makes sense to 
drop the numbers and make the numbering more coherent. I was kind of hoping we'd get a um, a match between the iOS and macOS version numbers at some point. So we wouldn't have to be constantly thinking about the differences. Because today you've got iOS 14, you've got macOS 11, you've got watchOS 7. I believe tvOS is the same version number as iOS. But with those right. three main operating systems, you have different numbers. And isn't that why Windows at one point skipped a few numbers to to match with something when they went from seven to 10? Was that it? Well, they, they went from eight to 10. Eight to and 10. I, I did hear some speculation that maybe the reason or a reason that they skipped over nine was something to do with um, some poorly written old apps that would check to see if it was running on Windows 95 or 98. And it was, so it would check for nine X, you know, nine or anything after the nine. Um, and if it saw that, then it would behave as though it was running on windows 95 or 98. That's the rumor I heard. I don't know whether that's really true. I honestly, if there were any apps that are that old and that poorly designed, then you probably don't really want to be running those on windows nine or 10 or whatever they were going to call it anyway. In other news, and this is a story you've been following for months. Um, Apple has been notarizing Mac malware and they've done it uh, once, twice, three times. This is the fourth time that they've done it. And we were talking about this before the show. And I, I said to you, I just, they have no way to not do this. They can't, they can't check everything that an app is doing when they review it. And this is going to just keep happening forever, isn't it? The thing is that this is, this is always going to be a cat and mouse game. You're always going to have Apple trying to get ahead of the malware developers and trying to find new ways to stop them. And then the malware developers are just going to find ways to work around it. And so, um, yeah, it happened already again. This kind of reminds me of the frequency of Flash Player malware that we had back in the day. That every single week there would be more malware. And every single week there would be Flash Player updates to try and uh, squash the malware. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, there were a couple of things that went on. And we'll talk more about this um, in our last episode of the year, uh, the the sort of history of Flash Player on the Mac in terms of its security vulnerabilities, as well as malware disguising itself as Flash Player. So maybe maybe we'll wait and I'll I'll leave that thought for uh, for that discussion. But tune into episode number 168, which is going to be all about Flash Player. There's an interesting thing going on at Gmail, and we're linking to an article on Michael Tsai's blog. Michael Tsai is a developer, and he has these sort of link blogs where he gathers together a lot of information from various people. There is a Gmail click time link protection where uh, if Gmail detects a malicious link in an email, it replaces that link in the body of the email. So it's actually altering emails that you receive. And and it, this is kind of strange because, well, go ahead and explain. We were talking about this before the show. You, you don't really see this as making much sense, do you? Okay. The reasoning that Google gives for this is they say that it's because links to malicious websites can be sent in emails that they're adding protection for all official Gmail clients. So that's like if you have the Gmail app installed or if you go to their website Um, and they say some of these protections are now available for some users. They use a third party email application and IMAP clients. So that could be like the Apple mail app, for example. Um, So they say some users that use those. So they say for for all of these users that they're talking about here, clicking a link in a recent message starts a malicious link check. And then if nothing malicious is detected, the user is then taken to the destination. 
Um, so here's the thing. Um, if at the time that the email is delivered, if Google detects that there's a malicious link in it and they can see the contents of the email, unless it's encrypted, um, which basically no email is hardly at all. Um, so they should be able to tell at the time that it's delivered to your inbox, whether a link is malicious or not. And at that time, they can choose to just send it to spam. So the only reason why this might make sense is if they want to, um, you know, deliver it to your inbox by default, maybe at the time of delivery, they didn't know this was a malicious link and they later discovered that. And rather than shifting it around and like moving it into your spam box later, which maybe they don't want to do, um, maybe that's why they're doing this. So in real time, they can check these links to see whether they're malicious. The problem here though, is that not every link that gets sent in, in an email to you is something that's necessarily intended for other people to check out, right? In some cases, they may be emails that were sent just to you with a link that's private and intended only for you to view and nobody else. Um, and maybe that URL is supposed to be kept secret for some reason. Now, Google is going to have a collection of URLs for some period of time. We don't know how long they're going to be logging these things. I don't think they've said. Um, but presumably, there's going to be some log for some period of time because you're now using a Google server to check the malicious nature of that link before you actually visit the link. That's where this is kind of weird. Um, and, and it kind of should make people feel a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe what Google's intentions are seem good, but there's also a, a huge potential for abuse here. Um, and it's one of those things, it's sort of that slippery slope, right? We're relying more and more on Google for all these things. In your browser, you're probably relying on Google right now to check for malicious links. Even if you use Safari, because Safari uses Google's uh, database for malicious links. Right, exactly. It doesn't even, it's not even just for Chrome users. Um, and so this is, um, it, it's something where we're giving more and more information to Google all the time with all these free, supposedly altruistic, you know, services that they're offering. But it also does mean that they're collecting a lot of data. And what are they going to do with that data? Um, I mean, we don't, we don't necessarily know how long are they? Well, they're going to monetize it eventually. So I'm not super comfortable with this, but at least for now, it seems like in some cases, if you're using Apple Mail or some other uh, app to access your Google Mail, then um, your Gmail links won't be necessarily modified. A couple of months ago, we talked about different services on the web where you could send files securely to people. And some of these services allow you to set the number of times a link can be used. So if I were to send you a link that could only be used once, would Google parsing that link end up expiring it because it's only allowed to be used once? I, I would assume so. Uh, that's, that's what it sounds like to me. Um, because in order for them to check whether the link is malicious, they have to do one of two things. They either have to just check um, whether it's already in a database that they have, wh whether the domain is or whether that exact URL is already in a database. If, and if that's all they're doing, then no, you know, this wouldn't be a problem. If they're actually visiting the link to check and determine whether it's malicious, then yeah, in those cases, uh, if you had a one-time use link, it would expire. I, I would 
guess that probably what they're doing is the first one, um, just to avoid that sort of issue. Uh, it could potentially be a problem if they were handling it in, this, in the second way. Uh, and you definitely would not want Google to be automatically visiting links that are intended just for you for a one-time use. Okay, before the break, just a quick public service announcement. PayPal is introducing a new fee for dormant accounts. Um, in fact, it's starting today. It, there's going to be a nine-pound inactivity fee. You know, I'm seeing this in The Guardian. I don't know what the exact amount is in the U.S. An account will be considered inactive if you haven't sent, received, or withdrawn money or logged in for a year or more. So basically, you can avoid the fee by just logging in. Now, I know a lot of people have PayPal accounts with only a few dollars or a few pounds in them because you bought or sold things on eBay. And for whatever reason, a friend sent you money. Um, you might want to think about just logging into your PayPal account just to make sure because, I mean, nine pounds, I'm going to guess it's $10 in the U.S. It's not nice to lose that, but imagine how much money PayPal is going to get. This sort of... Seems to me like this is just PayPal basically saying, yeah, we're, we're not making enough money, so we need to find some other re you know, revenue channel. And so what, what are we going to do? Oh, I know. We'll just uh, steal money from people who haven't logged in for a long time and claim that you know, there's some random reason for it. There are banks that do this. If you don't use your account, they charge a fee. I, I've heard of this, this is in different countries. Uh, my my see, guess is I, I what PayPal is going to do here is they're going to take this fee, they're going to wait another year, and then they're going to close the accounts because they've got too many accounts that are just sitting there not being used. Um, now, one warning that's mentioned in the Guardian article is be aware of scammers trying to use this as a way to gain logins. People might be sending out phishing emails to get your PayPal login information saying that you need to log in to avoid the fee. So go to PayPal.com rather than clicking on a link in an email you get. Exactly. Either type in P-A-Y-P-A-L.com and make sure you're typing it carefully because there are a lot of people who register lookalike domains to try to scam you uh, or fish you. And uh, or if you already have it bookmarked, um, then you can go to your bookmark. If you don't have a bookmarked, it's probably a good idea to just bookmark it and use that in the future when you need to go to PayPal. Also, you might want to make a recurring event in your calendar to once a year log into your PayPal account just to make sure that this doesn't happen to you at some future time in a future year if they're still doing this. Or just withdraw the money in your PayPal account, because if there's no money in the PayPal account, they're not going to charge you. And for now, they're not going to close the account. Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the new app privacy information feature on the App Store. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2021. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier, powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, personal backup to keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Big Sur and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. 
and click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users, made by the Mac security experts. Okay, one of the biggest new features in this week's update isn't really a feature that much. It's just providing some new information. And we spoke about this a while back. Um, Apple now has this app privacy information on the App Store. And this is on the Mac App Store and the iOS and iPadOS App Store. What this does is tells you what sort of data app developers are collecting, whether it's linked to you specifically, so it it knows about your identity, or whether it's not linked to you. Um, Data not linked to you, for example, this is diagnostic data or or some sort of usage data that a developer might collect. Just before we explain this, uh, you may remember last week we talked about WhatsApp was protesting about Apple's App Store privacy requirements because they were saying, well, we have to do it, but Apple doesn't have to do it with their apps. And just a few hours after we recorded, Apple announced that they were doing it for their apps as well. And and I don't think this was because of the WhatsApp complaint. I think they must have been planning to do this. Anyway, this feature is available in iOS 14.3 and macOS 11.1. But interestingly, it's not available before that. In earlier versions of iOS 14 and macOS 11, it's not available in Catalina or iOS 13 at all. And I'm kind of surprised by that because this is just metadata. Developers have a form where they go through a bunch of categories and a bunch of data types, and they just click a bunch of checkboxes, and then they click publish, and this data goes onto the App Store. For now, you're going to see a lot of apps where you see a little sign that says no details provided. The developer will be required to provide privacy details when they submit their next app update. Um, I talked to a few friends who are developers, and actually it's not really just submitting an update. Um, some of them were updated a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember what Apple's deadline was for developers and they weren't applied. But if you're a developer, you can go into App Store Connect and you can just say, I want to change some marketing information for my app and you can click publish and it will pick it up. So I think for the first couple of months, you're going to see a lot of apps where you don't see any information at all. And it kind of sounds like the app's developers don't want to show you that information. One developer I talked to said that he put this information in a month ago and his apps weren't showing this information. So Apple hasn't updated it. So it's a little bit complicated. You'll see it on a lot of apps that are updated recently. Uh, The best example, I think, is to go to the Facebook app uh, in the iOS app store and to see how much information there is there. By the way, this is the thing that uh, we were talking about last week about the uh, nutrition labels um, that's that's the other thing that Apple has compared this to. So if you've heard Apple talking about nutrition labels, that's what they're referring to. They're saying that this is sort of like looking at a food package and uh, and being able to see all the um, you know ingredients and what percentage of this and that are in it. And so instead of that kind of nutrition information, they're telling you privacy related information. Um, so data linked to you uh, could be things like financial information, uh, could be your location, um, it could be content that you uh, submit to the service, um, your contact information, your search history in some cases, other ways that you're using the app may be linked to you. There may also be some things that are not linked to you. Um, for example, they're, maybe they're collecting some information and aggregating it and collecting this anonymously from all of their users just so they can get a better idea of what types of devices, for example, their customers are using. Now, what's interesting about this is 
It's kind of confusing when you look at all of the different data types and categories. We'll, we'll go into a little more detail in a minute. You pointed out, we were discussing before the show, they're finally catching up to Android. And it's true that I've had an Android phone a couple of times just to test. And not only do you see information like this on the Google Play Store, but when you go to install an app, you get dialogues about the specific types of data that are going to be collected. Right. And that's one thing that Apple's not doing yet. Um, so that's a, a, a notable difference between what uh, Google has already been doing with their Play Store on Android and what Apple is doing with their App Store on macOS and iOS. Um, you don't get a dialog box that warns you at the time of installation. This is just if you happen to scroll down and notice those details about app privacy. That's when you'll see this. Now, maybe this is leading to that point. Maybe at some point Apple will also do that. You know, that remains to be seen, but at least for now, it's something that you can find out, but it's not pushed in your face. Right. Now, you do get alerts the first time you launch an app uh, if it wants to use your location, access your photos, your contacts, etc. But as you say, maybe they're planning to do this in the future on installation, in which case every app in the App Store has to have this information. So this is a process that's going to take some time. Right. And I do like that, uh, you know, especially on Android. I think this is uh, is really useful, actually, to see that dialogue at the time of installation, because there have been times when, um, you know, my kids have asked me to install a game on their Android tablet or something like that. And, you know, and I, I'm, as I'm looking through the list of all the information that this app is going to collect, I start to kind of go, oh, wait a minute. Why would it need to collect that information? Why would it need to do this or that? Um, that seems kind of odd. And uh, so it is It is good to know what kinds of things your app is doing because often this is you know, be, behind the scenes and, and it's not really transparent to the user. So uh, I, I really like actually the way that Google does this. And uh, I would like to see Apple be a little bit more in your face with this. It, it, you know, and and I, I know that, some people are going to feel like, well, that's going to get really annoying. And they're just going to click OK over and over again and not pay attention to it. Right, because it's dialogue box fatigue, right? Yep. And so um, there is that risk. But at the same time, if, if some apps are not giving any warnings because they're really not collecting information, um, then you know, you may not necessarily see this for every app. And for some apps, you may only see one or two things and it'll be kind of obvious why they might be collecting those things. But then, for example, when you're installing Facebook, when you see this like enormous list that has like every box checked, when they're collecting every information about you that it's possible to collect, it might give you pause and make you wonder, you know, maybe I shouldn't be installing Facebook on my phone. So one thing that I noticed is that there is a lot of data here. There are 14 different categories. A developer could just check all the boxes because they know that they're collecting so much stuff that they don't want to look into it in detail. Apple can't police this. I would assume that if it turns out that a developer has said they're not collecting something, but Apple finds that they are, then that's going to be a problem. But Apple's not going through and verifying that all this data is collected. So 14 categories. Let me read them out because I want to talk about a couple of them. Health and fitness, financial info, contact info, user content, browsing history, usage data, diagnostics, purchases, location, contacts, search history, identifiers, sensitive info, and that great category called other data. 
which could be anything. I'm going to link to an article on Apple's developer site, which discusses some of these. Um, so, for example, when you see financial info, you say, ooh, I'm worried. Well, it could be things such as your credit card number, because you've entered a credit card number at some point into an app. But it could also be your credit score, your salary, income, asset, debts, or any other financial information. Now, why would that be important? Maybe you have an app to check your credit score. So the app has to tell you that this data is going to be in the app and they're going to use it. So for location, there are two data types, precise location and course location. Precise is exactly where you are. When you check find my iPhone, it's going to find where your iPhone is within, you know, 20 feet. Course location is sort of around where you are. And it's not something that is going to be able to pinpoint you. Um, Something like sensitive info, and that's an interesting category. It's pretty vague. That includes racial or ethnic data, sexual orientation, pregnancy or childbirth information, disability, religious or philosophical beliefs, trade union membership, political opinion, genetic information, or biometric data. When you look at this in detail, you see how much data could be collected Um, It's kind of scary. But if you think about it, not much of that stuff is going to be collected by an app, even by Facebook. Well, right. Yeah. And for example, biometric data um, is not typically something that uh, a developer is really going to be able to collect much because, you know, you're using uh, Touch ID or Face ID for authentication on your device. But that's not, to my knowledge anyway, something that any third party developer has any way to tap into directly. But maybe they have to declare if they're using it with an app. So my banking app has its own password system and I can use Face ID to get into the app. Uh, So you need to use Face ID or Touch ID even after you've unlocked the phone. Maybe that has to be called sensitive biometric data. I do think it's worth reiterating what you mentioned about uh, how the developer actually is who's providing this information. When you go to uh, a, any particular app on the App Store, it says the developer, for example, Facebook Inc., indicated that the app's privacy practices may include handling of data as described below. For more information, see the developer's privacy policy. So they already were requiring developers for quite some time to link to their privacy policy for uh, any apps that they were distributing through the app stores. Now they're still linking to that privacy policy for you to get additional information. And they're just sort of summarizing that. Um, Again, this is all reported by the user. So So this is the developer indicated this, not Apple has verified in any way that this is really what the app is collecting. This is what the developer themselves, this is what the developer is choosing to report that they're collecting. And the phrasing there may include handling of data as described below means that a developer like Facebook, just in order to cover everything, could just check all the boxes. Yeah, I don't know why you would want to check all the boxes because it makes you look pretty... uh, Orwellian, you know, like well, they're monitoring everything. Facebook doing. already is monitoring everything. So why should we not, you know, what, they why probably sh- are checking all the boxes. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to get more scared, though, on any of the app stores, just click uh, when you see app privacy, just click see details and start scrolling. Um, and that's where you see how much really precise data there is. For example, I'm on Facebook Messenger on the Mac app store. And I'm just going to scroll down, contact info, physical address, email address, name, phone number, other user contact info, Um, usage data, product interaction, advertising data, other usage data. We know about that. 
um, precise location and course location. They chose both. I don't know why. User content, photos or videos, audio data, gameplay content, customer support, other user content. Now, photos or videos that you've sent. And so here it's interesting. When you grant Facebook Messenger on an iOS device or on a Mac the right to access photos, the photos app, you access your photo library, it doesn't mean it's going to read all the photos. It just means that when you want to send a photo, the authorization has already been given so the app can access it. There's a lot of details in here um, that may or may not exactly apply. So once again, you're really going to have to refer to the privacy policy to see exactly how they're collecting data, what they're, what exactly they're going to be using it for, and things like that. And in, in many cases, it'll be fairly obvious. Like for example, Instagram is going to need access to your photo library, or else you won't be able to upload a photo to Instagram. Um, they'll also need access to your camera, right, in order to for you to take a picture in the Instagram app and upload that. So um, those are things that are kind of obvious, but. Um, where I think this is, again, really useful is that there are going to be some things that you may not have ever considered that your app is collecting about you. And uh, we've talked before about how like incredibly complicated the legalese and privacy policies is sometimes. And I think that's the whole uh, point of Apple doing this nutrition label version of a privacy policy to sort of simplify things for you and give you a very broad overview of the kinds of things that it's collecting. I think this is a good thing. It's a good step in the right direction for Apple. Yeah. And I think, as I've said, it's both scary and maybe too scary. I don't think on the one hand, we should be extremely worried if there's a lot of data that looks like it's being collected. On the other hand, we should be extremely worried because there's a lot of data that's collected. I know that sounds a bit like um, kind of hedging this, but for some apps, you're going to see that they have to put a number of these categories down, but they might not actually be doing that much with them. Since uh, this is designed to make the broadest possible categories so all apps can fit in a limited number of options. Um, and for example, purchases, purchase history, an accounts or individuals purchases or purchase tendencies. Any app where you buy anything is going to be collecting that, whether it's the uh, Apple Music app, whether it's the iTunes store, um, whether it's the app store. On the one hand, there's too much. On the other hand, we shouldn't worry too much about it. But on the third hand, we should worry a lot about it, if that makes any sense. Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, next week, we're going to talk about the year in review in Apple security. So until then, Josh, stay secure. All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac podcast, the voice of Mac security with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.